Well, that was the opening music to The Good Earth, released in 1937 by MGM, starring Paul Muni and Louis Rayner. And I'm Matt Johnson, coming to you from sunny today, Seattle. And I'm Bob Johnson in Los Angeles, where our weather is like the normal weather in Seattle, cloudy and in the 60s. I feel like I've returned to the Northwest. Uh, it must be a relief. It is. I like it, yeah. People down there probably are bundling up with parkas. It's 60 degrees. It's cold. I'll be the same way next year after my body gets acclimated. Yeah, well, I, I looked at the weather, and it's going to s- potentially snow here on Thursday, so. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I've got some background on the movie. <clears throat> Did my usual research. The budget for it was $2.8 million, which in the 1930s was a huge amount, and it grossed $3.6 million at the box office. But the MGM records indicate that the movie lost $96,000. So my note was, budget must have been more than $2.8 million because of promotion, marketing, and creative accounting. <laughs> no, that's called Hollywood accounting, isn't it? <laughs> Hollywood accounting. So anyway. No, no, mo- no movie ever, ever makes money. They always break even. Money. Yeah. It was nominated for five Academy Awards. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, Best Actress, and Louis, Lu, Louis Rayner won for Best Actress, and it won for Best Cinematography. Just a footnote, Louis Rayner is alive and well in Europe, and she's 104 years old. Wow. Yeah, we should all be so lucky to live to that age. Uh, well, based on how we feel about this movie, I'm wondering why it was nominated and won so many awards but maybe it was a slow year of movies that year i don't know 1937 well 1939 was like the best year i think hollywood ever had i don't know about 1937 i know spencer tracy won that year for best actor in uh oh golly i think it's called captain's courageous but i may be wrong on that uh the thing i found out about this movie that was interesting to me is it had three directors the one that got credited on, on, in the film was Sidney Frankel, who did mostly silent movies. But then there was Victor Fleming, who did uh, Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz, which are both 1939. And then another director, Gustav Maté. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right. But I couldn't figure out what the three were doing. They, they must have had problems getting it finished or something. Well, maybe they just needed that many because it's a big scope. That you know, like yeah. maybe they were like second directors or something. That could be. And the studio took a 500-acre farm in Chatsworth, north of here, and turned it into a replica of a Chinese farm. And I thought they did a nice job of that. It was, to me, it looked like what I would think a Chinese village would have looked uh, at that time. Yeah, I thought the scenery was was great. And the, I would agree the cinematography was wonderful. Yeah, there were some scenes that were just amazing. I mean, my my, so, my favorite scenes. I put it in my notes at the end here. Um, uh, I like the I like the scene near the beginning where there's the storm and they they're gonna lose their crop, 
And uh, Olan is is played by Louis Louise Rayner, and she's pregnant, but she still goes out into the storm to help gather in the crop. Otherwise, they're they're gonna lose everything. Um, I like that scene. I like the mob scene in the city, kind of halfway through the movie. Oh, where they uh, storm the great house! My goodness, yeah, that's one of my favorite scenes as well. And you mentioned that you're you wonder if anybody actually got injured during that, and I I wondered the same thing as I was watching it because that seemed really out of control. <laughs> it, it really did. I it, it was awful. I mean, it was it was well done, but it was just it would have been an awful experience. I just I, and I wondered about whether anybody was hurt. I wanted to mention I, before we get too far ahead here. I really enjoy Paul Muni as an actor. He plays uh, the lead in this. Uh, and he did so many great movies for over 30, almost 30 years. The story of Louis Pasteur is one that he won the Academy Award for. Just what a talented man. Yeah, I thought he did, I thought he did a pretty good job. Yeah. I thought, I thought she did a better job, uh, Louise Rayner. I thought she was more... I thought she was more believable. She just seemed more uh, likable to me. More, more, more believable. Yeah, no kidding. I, I. Well, the thing let, that I let me let me just say my last oh, favorite sure. my last favorite scene though before we get into some of the other things is that that locust scene near the end. How did they do that? That was that was really well done too. And I and I was wondering, did anybody get hurt during the filming of that? Because they were throwing the kerosene on the fire and the, the hay on the fire, and it looked like they were really right up in there doing that. I don't know how they got that flying locust scene put together in 19... Well, they would have been making that in 19... It took three years to make the movie, so they were probably making that scene in 35 or 36. Just how they did, I don't know, but you're right. People could have been injured in that. And that may be one of the areas where they had to have three directors because it they could only do that once, I think. You know, with the fires and the the location they had, they couldn't redo it if they burned it. Right, right. That's a good point. Yeah. That's probably my best memory of the story, how they pulled together to save the village. Well, yeah. and especially after what was going on before that happened. Because, yeah, it... I mean, the story kind of follows that three-part arc that so many stories follow, right? Like, the, he's he's the poor farmer, gets an arranged marriage, has children, and seems to be doing okay. And then there's a famine that hits their little village, and they have to go south. Uh, and then I think the second part is in the city where things get worse. But then things get a lot, lot better, but not, you know, I mean, materially wise, it gets better, but then, but they're, all their relationships kind of fall apart. And then at the end, they sort of almost lose everything in, in their material possession, but their relationships come back together at the end. So to me, that was kind of the arc of the story. As I think about the film, it, there's something about it that doesn't connect well for me. And, and I think, as I look at it in 2014, at a movie made over 75 years ago, 
it's hard for me to get past the fact that all the lead characters are non-Asian. And I wonder to myself, how, we talked about this earlier, how would that have been had it been done with all Asian actors? And then in the 30s, in the U.S., that probably would have not been marketable that well either. And there were times in the film where I felt like it, the film, I don't know, so I guess it would be the script or the direction, was somewhat patronizing toward the Chinese and again, that, I, that may, I may be, I think I'm bringing my own bias to the viewing of it. But it, but it did affect how I, I didn't really ever get totally into the movie like I would have with some of the others that we've watched. There, there was, uh, there was a scene near the beginning when they were, they went to visit the people that lived in the rich house, sort of the, 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 the major landowners there. I don't know if they were part of the government or if they were just um, the rich people, but I think that was set up with like fiefdoms that were like governed by these kind of people. Yeah, well, that's where Olan came from. She was a slave in in that house, and then was wed to Wang, played by Paul Muni. Well, her dream, Olan's dream, was to have a son and then go back and visit. The people in that house and show off her son to the to the rich old lady that lives there perhaps there's a woman in a great house someone you knew in the kitchen none in that house well we're only two men here there must be someone in the great and house and i go back in that house it will be with my son in my arms I'll have a red coat on him, and red flower trousers, and a hat with a gilded Buddha and tiger-faced shoes. And I go into the kitchen where I spent my days as a slave, and into the great hall where the old mistress sits with her pipe, and I'll show myself and my son to all of them. Hmm. Well... Heard you speak so many words since you came to this house. And, and she actually did get to do that. And then they were walking back from from that trip, and they were so happy, and they were praising how beautiful their son was and how great their life was. And then they and then Olan stops and and says, oh, "But I can afford a piece of cloth, I think." Now I have two fields. <laughs> I bought it today from the great house. The land? They said it was less than an inch and took all that silver as if it were nothing. And the foolish clerks who don't own a foot of land laughed a goose cackle at me because I couldn't write my name. But I'll buy again and again until my land is more than an inch, even in the house of a prince. Look, young farmer, someday all this will belong to you. And you'll be a prince too. And I'll buy more land and more land. And... What a pity. 
We are so poor. We have nothing. And the child is nothing. Yes, yes. It's, it's, it's less than nothing. And it's only a female. And it's, and it's covered with smallpox as well. Yes, yes. Only a female. And covered with smallpox as well. They said all these sort of uh, disparaging things about the their son and about their life. And, and uh, you know, that's something in Asian culture that that I know about, which is uh, it's not good to brag and praise other people or praise yourself because it, it can bring the bad spirits down. And to me, like those scenes, there were, there were several of those scenes where there was another one where they were praying in front of the two statues. And right to me, that was pretty authentic. Actually. I, I didn't feel like that was patronizing because I do know that that's, that's actually uh, a belief. There was, there was one scene though, that was hard for me to watch, which was when, uh, Wang went to town with his uncle and his two sons to sell his grain. And you could tell that he was quite pleased with himself and they were doing very well and had money. Uh, and then after they sold the grain, the uncle says, Ah, what a beautiful day. That music, it seems to draw me in spite of myself. Let's go across the street and we'll go to this show and this it's like a nightclub almost. And that to me seemed patronizing. Like they had a, a woman who was dancing with these two swords and then uh, a, another woman comes out who's not Asian and is playing this uh, this Asian stringed instrument. And to me that was hard to watch just because yes. it, it just seemed like you're saying very patronizing and kind of stereotypical of what people would have thought. Uh, of Asian culture. something got lost as it was translated into the film well I think what what gets lost is the fact that in in the book you can imagine these people the way that that the writer is describing them and you can it's all in your imagination and then when it's on film it's it's up to the actors and the director to kind of bring that to life and I read the book a long time ago, so I don't remember the details, but I just remember that the book really sort of brought this whole uh, 
the whole story to life in a way that I didn't feel like the movie quite did. I, I felt like the movie went really fast, even though it's a two hour and 20 minutes movie. I felt like it, it, it was like these little vignettes, like these little scenes yes. that were trying to uh, make a point. <clears throat> and the word that came to mind, I looked it up on Google just to make sure that I remembered this definition correctly, but it's, a, it's like a parable, a simple story used to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson. And I felt like the movie was a series of parables that were trying to drive home the point that, you know, if you stay simple and stay living off the land and you don't aspire to have too much material wealth, that you'll be happier than if you try to uh, become super successful and, and rich. And the parts of the movie where they were the happiest were the parts where they had sort of the least amount of right. material wealth. And and to me, I think that that's kind of how I viewed the whole movie. It was like a, these little parables that were strung together. And there, it, I didn't really feel connected from the beginning of the movie to kind of the end of the movie. And it was hard for me to see sort of Wang's journey. Um, just for instance, when uh, Wang went and he had so much money that he was able to buy the the rich house and he became sort of the lord of of the village and he he felt that because he was so important and had so much money that he needed a second wife you sent for me well there's a thing i've done i bought the great house the house of lou courts and land i'm the new lord there Well, have you no thanks? I thought it would please you to be mistress in that house where you lived as a slave. Our sons were born here. They must have wives. We'd have grandchildren. There's room in that house for all. You'll have the high place with money to spare for slaves. You must make yourself becoming to it. Look at your hair, your clothes. You disgrace me. One would think you're still a wife of a common laborer. Where are the pearls you had? The pearls? I have them. You will never wear them. Why? I look at them sometimes. I need them. Give them to me. I know that I'm ugly and not to be loved. All that we have now came from you. That is the truth, and I say it. But now... But now? There's a woman. Not such a one as you. Not as good as you. It's like a sickness. When I'm with her, it's not enough. When I'm not with her, there's nothing. Even the land is nothing. Then it will be better when she's in your house. You will say that. Is it your wish? And 
and then he also became really distant and cold to Olan and also to his sons. And it was like this transformation happened where he, he was sort of this, uh, very passionate, caring father earlier in the movie. But then by this time he was very distant and cold. And I, and I didn't really see the connection other than just he's got money now and he's rich and he's powerful. So obviously he's going to be an a-hole. <laughs> <laughs> and then he returns to the other character, the, the more open, loving father after they fend off the locusts. And he accepts back his other son, who he had banished earlier in the movie. Well, he he accept he he accepts his youngest son back. He accepts sort of the uh, steward of the land because he had banished him for telling the truth, basically about his younger son and and uh, Lotus, right. uh, the second wife, because they were having an affair. Um, and he also accepts his his wife back because he'd sort of been really cruel to her. Now this house is full of silences. Uh, I was reading my mother a letter from older brother. Would you like to hear it? If he's well, it can wait. But there's more in your face than the letter. Uh, he will be a soldier. A soldier? Uh -huh. Now then, men don't take good iron to make a nail, nor a good man to make a soldier. It would be a disgrace to me, a man of Sylvan land. To have a son who's a soldier. But I'm nothing in this house. If you're lost in this house, go back to the land. Help Ching until the harvest. Rub a little earth on yourself. That's good for any man. Well, if the land isn't fit for you anymore, it isn't fit for me. Now, what all this stuff is, I don't know. He's come to the age of tempers and weeping. When I was a lad, I had no such tempers. You worked on the land, but he's like a young lord, and he's been alone here. When you were his age, you had a bride. But I was given a slip. My marriage cost my father nothing. The boy's our son. He would be better dead than here with this woman. What? You dream. Even she hears it, who hears nothing else. It fills all this house. The woman calls and she's bold. And your son is young. Enough! Gossip. That's where you came from. Where you wish to live. Live there then. Eat and sleep where you will. But between you and me, there's nothing. Nothing. Uh, and yeah. basically told her to go back and live in the kitchen. That's where she belongs. And uh, by the end of the movie, he's he's back to the way he was kind of at the beginning of the movie. Um, some other things I was uh, I noted uh, in my in my email to you. Uh, I, one is a question I, I wondered how accurate and realistic 
the story is as a reflection of the actual farm life. Uh, and that's more of a rhetorical question, I guess. But, you know, there was a scene in the movie where they had to kill the ox in order to survive. The ox was laying there. Uh, that was really hard for me to watch. He couldn't do it, so uh, she came in and, and did that. I, I was like, for some reason, that really got to me. It's funny. Then, I think I think that was the most emotionally powerful scene of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> the poor ox. I'm like, wow, I, I, I'll never be a cattle rancher, I guess. <laughs> um, and then there was a scene before he banished, when he finds out that his second son had had has having an affair with Lotus and he beats on his second son. He, he really beats him a lot. I thought I, that was hard for me to watch. I mean, it was like, Oh man, stop. Well, and uh, similar to that when they were living in the city and they had no food and oh, the, yes, the, right. the youngest son had stole some meat from an old lady. Well, and today, Nothing. No work of any kind. For things a beast should do, there were a hundred men fighting. It would have been better to starve on our own land than to come to this great city where there's no work for a man's hands. It will come. Now then, must I wait for my meat any longer? Meat? <laughs> It's the first we've had since we killed the ox. You must have baked from a prince today. It's mine. Where did you get meat? I took it from an old woman. You stole it? You thief! 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 have to steal or to live. A man can't stand it here. We're land of his own in the north. Takes the meat out of the pot and throws it across the, the hut and starts beating on him. But the thing that, that was hard to watch as well, and I agree that the later scene when he beats on him because of, well, him having an affair with Lotus, basically. Uh, but the the thing he had remorse uh, after he beat his younger son earlier at, uh, because of stealing the food. But I didn't feel like he had a lot of remorse later in the movie when he did that. He was very cold and sort of hard at that point. Yeah, yeah, he was. Yeah, that's when he had really done his material wealth uh, segment in the movie. So. So here's a question for you. Um, you had mentioned that one of the actors, Charlie Grapewin, was also in Grapes of Wrath, playing yes. kind, of, kind of the same character, I thought. He was Grandpa Joe. Yeah. Uh, and he, there were... he, did, he, he was a character actor par excellence. He played the grandpa part really well, yeah. I thought. Uh, but, you know, that, that movie got... Uh, there were some people saying that it was kind of communist propaganda. I thought this was this could be seen that way a little bit as well, sort of like uh, 
at the time. I mean, I'm not saying that it is or that I think that it is or, or anything like that, but just the fact that they were sort of uh, pushing that idea of not having a material possessions and, and everybody owns everything and share, sharing. Because at the end, he... He says that any everybody that helps me fight these locusts off, well, we, we will share equally in in the right. in the remainder of what we have. He's very, you know, and everybody's sort of happy after that, and they, you know, succeed in fighting off the locusts, and and he comes back to being sort of the more kind-hearted father figure. And, but I, I just wondered, like, what people thought of the story at that time, given the political situation happening around the world. Um, well, it's like the, against the it's it's made against the backdrop of our depression here, and then throughout the world, and then in China, the uh, nationalists were fighting the communists in a civil war, and the Japanese had invaded China in 1931, and they were, you know, ravaging Nanking and other places. So it, it the backdrop is, it's just so foreign to how people would have reacted at that time. It's foreign for me to know what the person in, sitting in uh, Denver, Colorado, watching this movie would have thought in 1937 if they still hadn't found employment. Yeah. Of course, how would they have gone to the movie, I guess? But anyway, I think the whole economic scene influenced a lot of the movies in the 30s, this being one of them as well as Grapes of Wrath, even though that came out in 1940. Yeah. Well, and we and we get a little bit of that in the movie because the younger son is talking about going off and being a soldier, and that there was uh, fighting in the north. And you know, we when they're in the city, we see that the uh, I think it's like the communist uh, rebels are going through the the streets, and or were those the was that the nationalists? I'm not sure. I wasn't totally clear on that. Or a third option might have been just one of the armies of one of the warlords. Yeah. It was so fragmented at that time in history when the story takes place. I'm not exactly sure who they were. The uniforms they were wearing looked more, more like those of the Nationalist Army. Yeah. But that may have just been because that's what they had. I think you're right. Be I think you're right because there was a scene where a, a, a guy gets up on a, a box and starts talking about the revolution. Listen, my brothers! Before the tyrants close my mouth, in a few days, China will be a free country. The day of the Manchu tyranny is over. The revolutionary army is on its way. They've been marching 30 miles a day, in spite of the rains in the north. Did you hear him? Yes. But what does it all mean? It's raining in the north. Every city in the south has joined the revolution. All China will soon be free. Don't let them drag you from your home. That promise to fight against your cause. Soldier! Soldier! And then he gets shot, and I think he probably was talking about the communist revolution. Um, and the, I bet the army was either, like you said, like a... a, a faction or maybe the the nationalists uh you know the the actual army coming in but uh yeah there was a little bit there was a little bit of like hints of what was going on in the bigger picture but they really focused on 
Yeah. You know, just that little village and what was happening there with those people. So, um, it took me three sittings to get through the movie for, for a couple of reasons, but I, I gave it a, uh, rating of six out of 10 on our rating scale, which is not one of my higher ratings, but it, Basically, it's a reflection of the things we've talked about today. How, how did you see the movie? Well, I, it took me three sittings as well. I sat down and watched it for about a half an hour, and then I just fell asleep, honestly, because it was late. And then I watched another hour or so yesterday, and then about another hour this morning. And I... I didn't feel like I wanted to go into the really extreme amount of detail in every scene and, and really look at it because I, I didn't think that it really needed that. So, you know, the, we talked about some of the scenes that we liked the best. Um, we talked about some of the scenes that we didn't like as much. I, I'm kind of falling down at, a, at about a five, kind of right in the middle, kind of an average uh, rating. Um, and, the reason being that there were some things that I really did like. I, I liked the scenes of the village. I liked the scenes of the city and, and the, the fighting of the locusts. Um, I liked the general kind of tone of the cinematography. There were some good scenes. I liked uh, Louise Rayner. I thought she did a really good job. Um, I, but I, I didn't really like Paul Muni as Wang. Um, I, I felt like he was kind of just on the surface uh, a lot of the times. I didn't feel like he really embodied the character, except in that scene where he was beating up his son for stealing the meat. I thought he he, he was really effective there. Um, there was a few other scenes that he that I thought he did really well in, uh, where he was more emotionally connected. Um, but, you know, like I said, I feel like it was... It could have been a shorter movie. I feel like they really sort of used a blunt instrument to get the message home about what they were saying about uh, being rich and having a lot of material possessions versus living simply off the land. Um, but they didn't do a good job of really explaining why that would have happened to him. It was just sort of like it did happen because, right. and it was, and it, we're supposed to think that it's self-evident that because he became successful, that he became sort of this hard hearted kind of cruel person uh, but I don't think that it didn't necessarily have to be that way. I mean, he could have become sort of the benevolent, benevolent rich landowner and been nice to his kids and his wife. But, you know, they didn't explain one way or another why he, he became the way, became what he did. So anyway, that's my roundabout way of saying I thought it was kind of an average movie. I found it interesting when I was watching it. When we watched, uh, when we reviewed uh, Grapes of Wrath, and, uh, well, let's say double indemnity, because those are, or stagecoach, all three from kind of the same era. I was really brought into the movie of those three. I really got into it. I didn't get tired. I didn't feel like it was too long. I didn't feel like it was too slow. But with this one, when I watched it, I, I needed the break. It was just like you say, they used a kind of a blunt instrument to dri drive home the points and, I think it would have benefited from being about 30 minutes shorter. 
Yeah, I think there was a few scenes where I was like, come on, just get, you know, get on with it. And and I found also that the the character of the uncle played by Walter Connolly. Oh, yes. Was right. just really that to me was really stereotypical. And and not just wow. not just of Asian culture or anything like that, but just of sort of the the conniving sort of whiny relative who's going to, you know, offer you all of his advice but none of it's good and he's going to steal from you when he can. And it was like Really, really. I mean, why would yeah. Wang? Why would Wang even listen to him? Like, there was the scene where uh, the uncle had brought in these two uh, merchants who were going to buy his land because he was. Right. This was during the the, the <clears throat> this was during the time when there was the famine, and he Wang was going to sell his land to buy food. Ah, another mouth to feed, my poor man. For the sake of your children, we'll give you a better price for your land than you can get anywhere else in these times. We'll give you... Twelve pieces of silver. What? Twelve pieces? For all my land? <laughs> I... I paid a hundred times that much. But who was starving then? Thieves! Thieves! <laughs> and well, you know, I must sell. to go south or die walking than to give it to you for nothing. What a pity. What a pity. He'd spent something like, you know, several hundred pieces of silver on his land and, and the uncle was like, well, no, you should sell it to these two people who are offering you 12 pieces of silver, which is basically like just giving it away. And fortunately, Olan comes out and says, no, don't, we're not ever, we're never going to sell our land. You, you know, it's not, it's not happening. It's like, why, why we're ruined? And it's like, well, how much better off are you going to be selling it for 12 pieces of silver? You know, it's... That was just an example, but there were a lot of scenes with him that I was kind of rolling my eyes at. <laughs> yeah, there was there was the one toward the well during the before and during and after the fight with the locusts to get rid of them. He, he was so annoying and didn't really add anything to the value of the movie. I thought he he wouldn't work. He would not. He re absolutely he refused to help, like in any capacity. <laughs> So anyway, I, he, yeah, you're right. He was 
in my mind, he was superfluous to the plot. I think you know if if we're if we're thinking about if if we could go back and remake this movie, if they cut it down to maybe less than two hours, maybe cut out his like the uncle scene, and really focus on just Wang and Olan and their relationship more, and really explain through sort of the actions of the movie why Wang would go from this really dirt-poor farmer to sort of a semi-successful farmer to losing everything again to through just sheer luck, because Olan found that bag of jewels during the mob in the riot scene, to just from just sheer luck going to being like the richest landowner in his village, and how that sort of affected his character. Then I think it would be like an eight or a nine. And... Yeah, you know, I think even just recutting this movie, maybe, and and uh, re-editing it could could help it. And that's like a bold statement to say for a movie that like won Academy Awards and and whatnot. But um, you know, I'm just throwing it out there as uh, sure. my own personal opinion. <laughs> I think I would benefit from that. I really do. I am going to read the book. I, I've got three books I'm reading right now, so I have to catch up on those. But I want to read the original book. The good earth, and, and then I can contrast it with with this. Well, once you finish it, we should uh, just take a couple minutes to contrast it with the movie. And see what you think. The movie. All right. Well, I think that wraps it up for uh, this time. And uh, next episode, we're going to be doing a double feature. Uh, we're going to be watching Twelve O'clock High. No, is that right? No. Three Ten to oh. Yuma. I knew that. Yuma, I knew there right. was a. I knew there was a time in the in there. <laughs> 310 to Yuma, the original and also the remake. And we're going to kind of go scene by scene for the major scenes anyway and, and kind of compare what they did in the original versus how they changed it, if they did, in, in the remake. Um, so that should be fun. It will be fun. I've watched both of them. I saw the original when it came out in the 50s in the theater. I saw both of them. Uh, the original, I think, came out in 1957, so I saw it in high school, and then I saw the second one a few years ago in the same theater where I saw the original oh, in Montana. Weird. <laughs> well, that was weird. Uh, and they're both excellent, and they're both very similar, and yet, yet they're and at the same time they have some differences. But I, they're both really good movies. I, I'm thinking. I'm thinking the remake is going to be more violent than the original. Uh. I don't know that it's more violent. It's it, the violence is handled differently, and the ending is somewhat different. But uh, the original had some violence to it too. Mm. So. But it was a different. It was a different time, so it was done in a different way. the The original would be more like something you'd see on television that you didn't see at all. Okay, well that'll be fun. So that's in fun. that's in two weeks. And, uh, yeah, so we kind of landed in the middle of our scale on this one. It wasn't uh, at the top, but not at the bottom. It wasn't a terrible movie. It was just sort no. of kind of average, no. I thought. I'm glad we watched it. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you in a couple weeks. Um, I'm Matt Johnson coming to you again from Seattle. And Bob Johnson in Los Angeles. Have a great mo uh, week of movie watching. Holy. You are the earth.